In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who dost enlighten the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit. Granted by the gift of the same Spirit, we be always truly wise, and ever rejoice in his consolation through the same Christ our Lord. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hear Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. Saint Joseph, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. <coughs> <coughs> Now the ice bucket which you see here on the table is to serve a double purpose. It's to remind you that tomorrow Father is going to give you a drink, if you care to have it. I know that this is probably against all the principles of these conferences because I suppose I should really be encouraging you to rush home immediately afterwards to give the children a kiss before they go to bed and to spend some quiet time with your wife. But you can keep the good resolution to after tomorrow and... Uh, <laughs> And stay for a drink if you feel if you feel so inclined. If you're very very conscientious, of course, then obviously go home. And the other the, the secondary purpose is that I remember I said at the beginning that if anybody had any questions, they could put them in a box, and I just completely forgot about it and forgot about the box. So that ice bucket is there. If you've got any questions, uh, you, you can write them down and put them in the box. And we're not going to consider them till tomorrow anyway, if we have time, because the, uh, there are so many things. I was, when we started this week, I wondered if I was going to have enough things to say, but it's turned out to be quite the contrary, that there's so many things that one can see. This is an inexhaustible subject, clearly. So we'll see how we get on. Anyway, it's not, hopefully, it's not, a, uh, it's not meant to be comprehensive. We can't possibly say everything in... Uh, five hours, which is all it is, hopefully we'll be able to follow this up uh, later on with other considerations. Anyway, to pick up from where we left last night, remember that uh, we were considering how fundamental it is that we must love our wives. And if we don't love our wife, then according to the principles which we enunciated, love being a faculty of the will and not of the emotions, we'll better start making up our minds to love our wives. It's possible to do this. It's possible to make up one's life, one's mind, in order to achieve an object. I was going to say make up one's life, and I think it's true also. that be, I mean, Apart from obvious external catastrophes, such as accident or illness or something like that, basically, we make up our own minds in life, whether we're going to be happy or unhappy, really. The decisions that we make determine our own happiness. And if you're going to be happily married, we've got to make up our minds, and not just make up our minds for once, but continue to, 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 uh, to maintain the will to love and to give. And if we don't, 
we'll end up in some form of selfishness, either closing ourselves up in our shell within our own family environment, or we'll just give up the whole thing altogether, abandon our wives and children and run off with somebody else, and then probably repeat the whole, the whole exercise over again. I think the statistics show that second marriages last longer than first marriages. Why? Is it because they're happier? I think it could be that having done it once, you think, well, oh, better not try a third time. That's really <laughs> just uh, impossible. So we've got to determine to love. Love is a question of the will. And in marital love, of course, this is expressed in its culmination and its consummation is, of course, in the, the marital act, in the marital embrace. And that's why this is the purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage is the procreation of children. You cannot possibly have the procreation of children. You can't produce their bodies without the, uh, without the, the completion of the marital act. And the marital, the marital act is not only to produce children, but it's also to be the ultimate expression of love in marital life. And that's why it's insisted upon in the book of Genesis by our blessed Lord himself and by St. Paul, as we read yesterday and repeated at the, at, at the, at the, um, at the, uh, the, the nuptial mass. For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall be one flesh. Note that it underlines the union which must exist. The union of body, or clearly, in cleaving to one flesh, but also the union of mind. Why does it say a man shall leave father and mother? It's surely to express that the most close and the most profound union of love which exists outside of marriage is the relationship that we have with our parents. So we've got to even abandon them and give ourselves totally to our spouse. That's also why particularly women, of course, have got to abandon, not abandon in the, in the sense of totally forgetting, but they've got to leave their mothers and give their lives completely to their husbands. And also, now, of course, when we know we've got a baby society, we've got to have men also who will break with their mother's apron strings and give themselves completely to their wives. So consider for a moment the splendor and the magnificence of the marital embrace. This is fundamental to marriage, so there's no point in being coy about it and pretending that it doesn't happen or whatever, because not only should it happen, it's also the most beautiful, if it's all as God wills, it's the most beautiful expression of love that there is in marriage and that there is in this world. So let's speak about it. Here's a, here's a thing from a, um, a quotation from Two in One Flesh. It's a book on, about marriage by Father Messenger, who was a, a Jesuit who wrote many, many things, many, very, very good things in the 1930s and the 1940s. The marital act is essentially a manifestation of the mutual love of husband and wife for each other. A love which normally will have its ultimate expression in the birth of offspring. 
Side by side with this, we find another and even more fundamental aspect of this, namely its religious character. I don't know if you thought about the religious character of the marital embrace, but it has a religious character since marriage is a sacrament and it's the ultimate expression of this sacrament. This is unfortunately hardly ever realized and it's therefore calls for our special consideration. To assert that this act has a religious character will doubtless seem strange to those who have hitherto looked upon it as merely an animal act. Yet it's clear that the marital act has indeed a religious character. This point has been made very clear by Pope Pius XI in his encyclical on Christian marriage. His holiness says, Clearly the offspring begotten by God's almighty power with the cooperation of husband and wife is a very noble gift of his goodness and a most excellent fruit of marriage. Christian parents should understand, moreover, that their duty is not only to propagate and maintain the human race on earth, it's not even merely to rear worshippers to the true God, they are called to give children to the church and to beget fellow citizens of the saints and members of the household of God in order that the worshippers of our Lord and Saviour may increase day by day. Try to remember that when, often when we speak about the church, we're not speaking about a, a club or a human institution. We're speaking about the church as the living body of Christ, the mystical body of Christ continuing on earth. So that by producing other bodies, human bodies, who are elevated to the supernatural life, we are producing living members of Christ's mystical body on earth. So this is a, another staggering aspect of our vocation. Thus, parents act in the first place as God's instruments in propagating the human race on earth. Secondly, they have the duty to bring into the world new worshippers of the true God. And thirdly, their office is to bring into being new members of the church, which is the mystical body of Christ. And all this is brought about precisely by the performance of this act and cannot happen without it. Therefore, we have abundant grounds for asserting the religious character of the act itself. First, then, it is a marvelous function in which human beings are given to share in the creative work of God himself. Secondly, it's the means of increasing the worshippers of the true God. And thirdly, it is the divinely ordained means of growth of the mystical body of Christ. To all this add the fact asserted in Holy Scripture that marriage is a sign of the union between Christ and the church, precisely inasmuch as it is consummated in the sexual union whereby two beings become one flesh. And there is then surely no room for doubt as to the sacred and religious character of the act performed in the manner in which God ordained it. Obviously, performed in the manner in which God ordained it. Therefore, performed within the sacrament of marriage and performed chastely within the sacrament of marriage. We must never forget that when rightly exercised for the, prop, for the proper intentions, the performance of this act, so far from being sinful or even at least indifferent, is in fact meritorious in the strict theological sense of the word. 
That is, it is an act which, being performed in a state of grace, merits further graces. I wonder how many of you even consider this aspect of what is fundamental to your lives. And I don't know why this is by some sort of, I don't know, sort of false prudishness or something, that these beautiful things are not considered really as they should be. It's in fact meritorious in the strict theological sense of the word. That is, it is an act which, being performed in a state of grace, merits further graces, and in company with other works performed in a state of grace, helps us to merit eternal life itself. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That not only is this the ultimate expression of one's emotional love, one's physical love, it's the ultimate expression of one's spiritual and supernatural love for one's spouse and a means of merit and bringing one to eternal life. That's why this must be something which is very sacred in the sense that it should be a genuine, total surrender in love and not a seeking of personal, sensual gratification. Naturally. Naturally, it will, and it's intended to be, it's intended to be a source of sensual gratification. But it's it's secondary aspect. If we, you see, the morality of things is not to exclude aspects of them, but to subordinate everything according to its correct order. Remember, that's what St. Thomas was saying earlier about the, about the, the fault of insensitivity. That it's right and just and correct to appreciate the gifts which God has given us, even the sensual pleasures, even the pleasure of the body which God has given us, all subordinate to the purpose for which God has given them. This is so important that it seems worthwhile to give the passage in which St. Thomas Aquinas sets it forth. It comes from the Summa Theologica Tertia Pard Supplementum. Quote, Since no act proceeding deliberately from the will is indifferent, the matrimonial act is always either sinful or meritorious in one possessing grace, depending on what the intention is. For if one is led to perform the marriage act either by the virtue of justice in order to render the debt or by the virtue of religion, the children may be procreated for the worship of God, the act is meritorious. There you are. The greatest theologian of the church says so. So there's no, there shouldn't be any doubt in our minds. What an amazing and a wonderful thing. What a responsibility, however. Therefore, really and truly, I think that, you know, the the, 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 the words of sacred scripture should really be put to practice in our lives. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it says, Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest. There you are, isn't that beautiful? Live joyfully with the wife that thou lovest all the days of thy unsteady life which is given to thee under the sun, for this is thy portion in life. To say that something's somebody's portion in life, you think, ooh, what's he going to say? It's going to be something awful. It's your portion in life, son. You've, you know, you've got to work, you've got to labor, you've got to... It's very nice when somebody says that your portion is life to live, is to live joyfully. 
Live joyfully all the days of thy life with the, with the wife whom thou lovest. What a marvelous thing. That, of course, is how it should be, and that's how I hope it is. But it's not necessarily how it always is, necessarily because of our fallen nature. So, beautiful as all that is, we've also got to recognize the fact that even apart, even apart from any que- question of sin, this act in fallen man tends to cloud the reason, at least at the time of its performance, in such a way that at that particular moment, it seems impossible to think of God and divine things. And for even for sometimes afterwards, it can seem that one is drawn to earthly things rather than to the divine. This feature of the act, however, is, as St. Thomas Aquinas has explained, a penalty of original sin, but not a sin itself. Got to remember that. There are penalties of original sin which are beyond one's control, so they're not sinful. Moreover, as we have seen, passion has its rightful part to play in the performance of this act, when it's concomitant to the act. That's how God has arranged it. Even so, human nature is so weak that there remains always a possibility that the performance of this act has been dictated not by lofty moral and religious considerations, but merely for the sake of the physical satisfaction of the sex urge, or only for the sake of the pleasure attached. Such an intention, as we have seen, can easily involve sin, especially if it is so intense that it even involves an exclusion of the primary end of marriage and of the sex act. Now, what's the point of all this? The point of all this is to understand that even as married men with all the gratifications and all the beautiful satisfaction which God has attached to marriage, that we must live chastely. And therefore, that we must have pure minds and pure intentions. Now, but said earlier on, which was a fascinating question, was that, as St. Thomas says in another place, that before the fall, in the state of innocence, that marital activity had a greater intensity of pleasure and satisfaction than it had after the fall. Now, I think that that is, well, it's interesting, of course, just as an academic question, but I think it's also got more than an academic or speculative interest. I think it's got also a real-life interest Because I think that it means, it must mean, that within marriage, that the more pure our mind and the more pure our intention is, the greater will be our satisfaction and pleasure and joy and happiness from this. If it's a really and truly a pure expression of our own selfless love, However, if it's adulterated by impure intentions, and they inevitably must become an expression which is at least partially of our own self-seeking and our own self-satisfaction, independent of the happiness of our spouse. In that case, the action, of course, can still remain a good action. It may be 
diminished, but even that diminution is not desirable. Therefore, it does mean that we have got to keep our minds pure. Now, since the world began, it's been very difficult for men to keep their minds pure. Let's face it, the greatest weakness which every man who ever came into this world has is the tendency to gratification of the passions of the flesh. And, of course, above all, and first of all, the gratification of the eyes. We can't help ourselves. Let's be honest about it. We can't help ourselves, almost, in the face of these kind of temptations. And, of course, today, we really have an immense problem. And that problem is that I imagine that now, I don't know, but I should think, probably something like 80% of the people in this room have the means of seeing the most horrendous images of pornography in the very sanctity of their homes. Once upon a time, to indulge in a bit of pornography was a bit of a, well, a dangerous or at least an exciting pursuit. You had to go to the newsagents and uh, buy a naughty magazine, which in itself, well, maybe not now, but once upon a time was a bit of a humiliation. used to be called, remember, once upon a time, under-the-counter publications because they weren't meant to be seen even on the news racks. Imagine that. (laughs) Well, (laughs) just going to the most innocent shop now, and what do you see? And then, of course, you had to find somewhere to read it. And if you took it home, then you had to hide it. (laughs) All of it, you know, a bit difficult. And how many good, honest Catholic men would run the risk, family men with good innocent wives and children run the risk of going into a cinema where there was a, I don't know what, in Britain they're called X-rated films, I don't know what they're called now. Well, you'd have to have a pretty good disguise or you just wouldn't go. There were obstacles to these things. So it was, you know, any self-respecting person could, with relative ease, not look at evil things. And, of course, if anybody said in the confession, oh, well, you know, I was looking at pornography or I had a a wicked sort of, uh, I've got a wicked video, you'd say, well, this is very bad and the first thing you've got to do is destroy, you know, get rid of it and so on. It's a bit hard to say now, get rid of your computer. Because, of course... We need our computers. Even the priests have got computers now. (laughs) And on that computer, I find it hard to believe that when we are all alone, nobody else is in the house, and we're doing our work, and we're a bit fed up, and we know that just with a flick of a couple of uh, touches, mm, there, away you go. I saw that it's a fact, I'm sure it's a fact, that many good men, who previously would not have given into such temptations, now do. And not only that, what they are likely to see 
is well beyond anything that their fathers would have seen in a naughty magazine a few years ago. And not only that, when you're not at home, what about your children? What might they see? (laughs) And this is now right at home. Once upon a time, at home was a bastion, a fortress against the world outside where you could retreat to with your children and shut out the influences of the world. Now, they're all right in. And the very worst possible things are now right in. Here's a little thing about it. You know, I think a lot of you have heard and read the things of Steve Wood, the, uh, the American... <clears throat> the, uh, the American Catholic uh, layman who's uh, very good in championing championing, uh, questions of family and fatherhood. He says, The venom of internet pornography is slowly killing the spiritual life of millions of Christian fathers. And I'm sure it's true. At every Catholic men's conference I've ever spoken at over the past four years, I've encountered men addicted to internet pornography. Men from every region of North America who attend Mass every Sunday, are silently addicted to pornography. Scores of wives have contacted the Family Life Center, that's his organization, alarmed about their husband's addiction to pornography. These wives are fearful about pornography's corrosive effects upon their husbands, upon their marriages, and upon their children. Obviously. In March 2000, a national survey conducted on the family, found that one in four American men seek sexual fulfillment online. Nearly one in five Christians gave the same response. Yes, internet pornography has spread to men in the church. Yet, many men have told me they've never heard a single word about pornography in their parish or in their diocese. Pornography is spreading to children, almost a third if, his statistics, if these statistics are correct, it's alarming. 31% of children ages 10 to 17, 10 to 17, from households, households with computers say that they have seen a pornographic website. The Attorney General Commissions on Pornography found that 12 to 17-year-old boys are the highest consumer group of pornography. The highest consumer group. The sons are following in their father's footsteps. Millions of Christian men in the 30s and 40s started secret pornography addiction after they found their father's pornographic magazines hidden somewhere in the house when they were boys. Technically savvy kids today can easily find computer records of their father's visits to pornographic websites. Not only is this a terrible thing in itself, but if one is addicted or gives in to this kind of thing, you, it's, it, one runs the risk of losing one's entire authority if our children find out. And how can we possibly have any, you know, have any influence for good if we have a kind of a, a secret of this nature? What on earth is the solution to this problem? I honestly have no, I mean, apart from obviously self-discipline, and which has always been the case, when you've got a constant 
source of temptation. It's amazing. Well, obviously, for your children, you should have filters on your computer so that they can't access these kind of things. But really and truly, we should all have a filter on our computers so that none of us, even in our mature years, are likely to give in. Because it becomes, apart from anything else, it becomes addictive. It's profoundly, it's a curious thing, it's profoundly, it's profoundly anti-sex in its fullest significance. Do you see what I mean? If we fill our minds with pornographic images, we're going to become constantly unhappy because we're even going to start seeing our wives as inevitably as sexual objects or sexual performers and they are not going to live up to, and nor should they live up to, or nor would you want them to live up to what you might see in a pornographic film. Uh, but it's still going to leave a whole dissatisfaction and unhappiness for you and for your spouse. And it will destroy the true joy that should come from marital love. It's a funny thing, isn't it? It's a kind of a paradox. That's why all these things, these sex manuals and all the kind of things you can see in any, in any shop now, in any ordinary bookshop. I mean, you could scarcely safely send your child to go and buy a school textbook at a bookshop now. <laughs> There's so many other things that are absolutely graphic. Not that it's not certainly married men shouldn't be children. I mean, obviously, married men have got to have knowledge of of sexual practices and activities, but if they become an end in themselves or they fire our imagination in this evil way, the results are totally devastating, totally devastating for, for one's healthy sexual life. It's a funny thing. It's like, it's like Adam and Eve in the state of innocence, you see, that before they committed sin, they actually would have had a greater enjoyment and a greater satisfaction, total enjoyment. I don't mean enjoyment in the sense of purely sort of physical enjoyment. I mean a total fulfillment. And it's the same, it's exactly the same thing. If we want to live in a state of purity, then we're going to suffer the same consequences. See, because how God has arranged things, we cannot go against the laws that God has established. I mean, you can go against them, you can disobey them, but we can't, nothing can be altered. It's like recently, well, recently, a few years ago, they had a, they had a, they had a survey about marriage in, in England. I mean, it was nothing to do with any religious thing. There was nothing religious about it at all. It was just one of these social studies that they, they, they interviewed people of a certain age who'd got married at such and such a year of more or less the same age. And, to discover if their marriages had lasted for when it was 10 years or something. And they discovered that people who had not had any sexual relations and not lived together were the ones who had the highest rate of successful marriages. Well, we know that by faith, that that's what God wants. But it's interesting to know by practice, because from a purely human point of view, normally, whatever you do, if you've tried it out, you know what you're doing, and it's more likely to be successful. In this, no, it's the opposite. <laughs> if you try it out first, it's contrary to God's law, it's going to be less successful. Fascinating. So, 
see the importance of a pure mind. Now, over and beyond that, this is something which I, I had, I must even confess I had not considered before. Here's another thing from this book. I said at the beginning this wasn't such a great book, but the more I've looked at it, I've actually found out that it's got really very profound things in it. Here's another thing about, about immodesty. Or, I mean, immodesty, pornography, the whole sort of thing. Here's what he says, and I think it's really very interesting. And I wonder if any, many people have thought about this. The cause of lapsed fatherhood is not difficult to find. He says it's not difficult to find. I think there are two root causes. The first is a modesty on the part of women and incontinence on the part of men. The second is intellectual irresponsibility bred by modern methods of work. Now, these are two things that we've got to face. See? The immodesty of women, and by immodesty of women, we've got to think of not just actual, the clothes that women are wearing, but the whole, the whole, everything that we see in the papers, on the TV, and all that kind of thing. And the other is the nature of our just ordinary, everyday work. Modesty and continence go hand in hand. Without either or both virtues, men become the slaves of women. That's interesting, because it's kind of, at least young boys think it's very manly, you know, to be sort of interested in these kind of things. But it makes men the slaves of women. The natural tendencies to sexual promiscuity and feminine coquettishness as a consequence of original sin have been aided and intensified by the popular use of contraceptives. Previous to their widespread distribution, male continence was encouraged by women for fear of the social tragedy of bearing illegitimate children. Nature, permitted to take its course, rendered a punishment that few women would dare the risk of incurring. Thus, for reasons of respectability as well as morality, certain social precautions were taken to save men from themselves. The most effective of these was modesty in dress. Another was the custom of chaperones, both good Christian customs. The manufacture of contraceptives made possible by mass production methods changed all this. There was nothing to fear now but God. (laughs) Women set out to be attractive and men gave up trying to be continent. The whole social attitude towards women changed so that today a pious virgin can dress to the point of being indistinguishable from a harlot without evoking any comment more than adverse than a whistle. This change in the character of womanhood drastically revised the common attitude towards marriage. Having children became arbitrary. The female instrument of contraception placed the decision for having children on the shoulders of the mother. It became her prerogative to say how few children she should have. 
When you add this fact to the obsolescence of the male virtue of continence, it's no wonder that the modern male has become subservient. We would be astonished to discover how many kept women decide the policies of our nation due to the judicious use of their wiles and the extreme vulnerability of incontinent men. Wherever the Catholic family continues to maintain the Christian principles of morality in relation to the Marriage Act, it has to be done unaided by social customs and habits of the same order. This is why we are in such a problem now. We've got everything against us. Although a wife may be of goodwill, she may still subscribe to the current social views on female decorum whenever they do not obviously clash with morality. She may still feel that children are arbitrary and encourage the practice of of Catholic, so-called, birth control indiscriminately. This is a question which we could have gone into, but we've got no time now, the core question of, the, um, of contraception and the uh, and natural family planning. But obviously natural family planning, even the word family planning is not a very good expression, but the, 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 use, of the, incontin- uh, the, the use of the sterile period, so to speak, is of course not immoral. But the reasons for doing it can be wrong and immoral for motives that hardly are sufficient. The man may consider his wife an exception to the general rule while continuing to hold the current views towards women in general. This will not only try his fidelity, but also make him unfit to guide his growing sons and daughters. Private virtue in regard to chastity will always be seriously threatened until it is accompanied by public norms of morality. So there's that, and then there's a second thing which, which will help us to move on to the next point. The second cause of the loss of male headship may very well be a remote consequence of the first. It's otherwise difficult to explain why men have for so long tolerated a social system so detrimental to the fulfillment of their vocations. The concentration of productive property in the hands of a few has left the average husband no alternative but to let himself out for hire. He no longer possesses either the skills, the property, or the tools to set his own motives or standard of work. Returning home from an office where all his conquests have been of doubtful merit to the community at large, or from a factory where his efficiency is measured by mechanical standards, he can maintain dominion over his family only by reversing the habits which have characterized Terrorized his working day. What virtues he does possess can only be revealed to his children under home circumstances much more favorable to his wife. He finds himself helping her in tasks of her own invention, doing work which she initiates. In the eyes of the children and his wife, he soon assumes a subordinate role. Is it small wonder that the suburban husband, in more cases than one, seems somehow less formidably masculine than his wife? Well, 
which takes us on to the next point. Another point. The next point is a fundamental point. Because we live in the times in which we live, and because very few of us have got any knowledge of history or much sense of history, we take life as it comes. And we life has been organized in the manner, basic manner in which we live it now for so long that it's impossible. It's hardly it's it's really hard for people to imagine that life could be any different. However, the life that we live now is very extraordinary. It's not at all life as it was lived for the greater, the far, far greater part of human history. The life that we live has only been lived for approximately 200 years. Now, what do I mean? I mean that in the order established by God, in the order of life, as it's ever been from the beginning, husbands, wives, and children lived and worked together. In the old days, when it was a struggle for survival, working on your little plot, or on your little field, or even working for your feudal overlord and living in a little village, a tiny little village, you were really a slave, and you had to go and work all day. It was a miserable life from many points of view. People were totally, totally illiterate, and they had nothing really to do except work all day. But they worked all day together. Children were living constantly in the presence of their parents, both parents. Fathers did not go out to work. Fathers worked at home. They were constantly present. Children did not go to school. That sounds a shocking thing to us now, doesn't it? Children did not go to school, and it was terrible, wicked, because they were mostly illiterate. But guess what? They worked. Work? What a terrible thing. Imagine children working. What an abuse. They worked with their parents. The boys went out into the fields with dad and worked. The girls stayed at home, stocked up the copper, and did the laundry with mum. Life was totally and completely integrated. The exemplar of all families is the Holy Family. And guess what? That's how they lived. The child Jesus did not go to school. (laughs) He stayed at home. And he stayed at home. And what did he do at home? He worked. He worked in the workshop. And who did he work with? He worked with his father. And men made other men out of boys who were in their constant presence. Then, in the 19th century, the genius of man, and it is a great genius of man, devised means of making life better. Devised means of producing vast quantities of goods according to a system of labor which was regimented in factories and industrialized. 
instead of everybody staying at home and doing their own little thing, well, nobody can do everything. That's impossible. And if everybody tries to do everything, they're not going to have very much at the end of the day. They didn't have very much. But if everything becomes specialized, and you have work lines and machines, you can produce vast quantities of goods so that the average person now, for example, you and I, in reality, have got far, far, far more material goods than even uh, even the, the, the high nobility of medieval times. The poorest man now has got more comforts than the, aristoc- the high aristocracy of the medieval period. We live in houses which are far more comfortable than these cold, awful castles. <laughs> we live in comfort. The, the variety of food that we eat is, well, undreamt of, even by the super-rich of previous times. And I'm speaking about the poorest of people now. I'm not speaking about, <laughs> about the super-rich of today. It made a very nice life, but it, it seriously has taken its toll on social life. Because it means that fathers left home. They went to work. They went to the factory, and they went early, before the children even got up. And they toiled all day, and they came back again when it was dark. And they were exhausted. And they were... The children kept at home all day by the mother were put to bed, as children should do at 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock, and they never saw their fathers. Maybe their fathers gave them a little kiss before they went to bed, but that was it. Or if their fathers were around, their fathers were too tired and too exhausted to bear being at home. If they were poor people and they had nothing to come home to except a little unit with one room or two rooms and the children screaming and running about and playing, well, they went to the pub to get away from the wife and the kids, and they only came back afterwards while the children had gone to bed. That has become the tenor of life. It's got worse now. Now women do the same thing that men did in the Victorian times. What do you see now? Stand outside any school now, it's a tragedy. Stand outside the school at 7 o'clock. It's not the father going out to work in the early morning and coming back late. Now stand at 7 o'clock and you'll see the children already being dropped off. Imagine, before 8 o'clock in the morning, dropped off by their, by their parents going off to work. Some parents, a lot of parents, I think, don't even give their children any breakfast. They get their breakfast at school. And then they come back for them at, oh, I don't know, 6 o'clock in the evening. School finishes at half past three, but the poor children have got to stay there doing apparently very interesting activities at their fun things until their parents come back for them. Their parents have now become really complete strangers to them. Even their mother now has become a stranger to them, never mind their fathers. The terrible problem is for boys, because now boys are essentially cut off from any male mentors. If they don't have a good relationship with their father, if their father doesn't take a close interest in them, what other man is going to? They only see their mother at home because nowadays fathers work miles from home. They work miles away. They compute, not only do they work all day, they spend whatever other time on the train or in the car coming home. 
These boys only see their mother. And they go to school, and what do they see? They only see women. In the junior schools, all the teachers are women, because it's a motherly thing to do. These women are mother substitutes. But there are no men there. And in fact, no self-respecting man now, would, I think, would hardly take up a job there, because he, might, he would be afraid that he might be considered to be a paedophile or a pervert or something like that. Men now are even afraid of children. Isn't it true? If you're sitting on a train or something and you see a child doing something sweet or something, you think twice about looking across and giving an approving smile or a nod or a wave. (sighs) How dreadful. And you would almost say it's almost worse if that child happened to be a boy. You'd be doubly afraid. (laughs) This is now the sick situation in which we live. And therefore, it's absolutely essential and demanding as it is. That's what, I mean, why are we even having this fatherhood week? I mean, would our grandfathers or our great-grandfathers needed to be told how to be a father or to have insights in being fathers? Well, probably they could have done with it. There's no doubt about it. But life was just so uncomplicated then as compared to now. So few obstacles. Now, at every turn, whatever we do, wherever we look, everything for us now is a problem. Even the basic things of relationships with our own children has now become complicated and a problem. We've got to consider if we are maybe strangers to our own children. That may not be necessarily the case here because this is a particular environment altogether. You all live fairly close to home and um, we've got a special sort of community here. But nevertheless, it's still possible to not show the interest and love and attention to your children that they must have if they're to become fully developed human beings, and particularly in the case of boys, because girls are constantly, all their lives, in the presence of other Women, all the time, constantly. So they've got endlessly, all the time, feminine role models on which to emulate their lives. Because how the children learn, children don't learn from speculative considerations or from reading books. They learn from observation. They learn from observing and then imitating. And therefore, the figures that they have to emulate and to imitate is going to be the the molding, the driving force of their entire personalities. So if we are not the image which they are to imitate, then somebody else will be. Or nobody else will be, or no other man will be, and they'll be bereft of developing their personalities, and particularly, as I say in the case of boys, their masculine personalities. It's natural, it's understandable, that if you've been working hard all day, all you want to do is just have a bit of peace. But you come home, there's all this activity going on. It does demand another degree of heroism 
to look pleased, to look happy when your children want you to start running around the garden and playing ball and all that kind of thing. And they're screaming and yelling when you really want to have a quiet night, when they want to ask you childish questions and throw themselves on top of you, when you want to have a snooze and all these kind of things. But it's absolutely necessary to do it. And it's necessary, and you can't, again, I don't think it can be done by just sheer nothing but gritted teeth willpower. We've got to really remind ourselves that why do we, why, what are we doing going out working all day anyway? Who are we working for? We're working for them. We're devoting all of our energies for them. Therefore, it's a bit funny to do that all day and then not want to show any interest in them when we come home. (laughs) So we really should try to make them our joy, our pleasure, our recreation, and our comfort and rest. That's hard to do. But it's absolutely necessary. Otherwise, we're going to have children who are alienated from us, whose lives are going to be influenced by things outside of the home, and that's what's happened now. And especially when inside the home, there are all these influences that I've already speaking about, the TV, the world outside, and all of its solicitations, which, if it's not actually inside our specific homes, isn't (laughs) just right outside the door. And no, nobody, not even children, can be kept locked up eternally. This is the great and fundamental question which we have to face. Another thing which is, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to exaggerate, but it's certainly an interesting consideration. There's now the whole question of the enormous, a, um, Upsurge of homosexuality. Now, what are we to make of all that? Why should this be so? Is it just because people have just made up their mind to be so wicked that they want to be as wicked as they possibly can? That's possible. Or is it the symptom of a far more fundamental problem? This condition should be of interest to us because we may have children who have temptations in this regard and it's necessary to have some way of understanding it, especially to do all that one can possibly do to avoid it. Isn't it interesting that it's in this modern times, in this modern times that this problem has become such a major issue. Very often it would appear that people who have temptations in this regard have had unsatisfactory relationships with their fathers, almost invariably. Now, of course, we don't want to exaggerate this. We don't want anybody to think that if they had a son who was this way inclined, it was their fault. I'm not saying that, all right? Be careful what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is because there are plenty of men who have very unsatisfactory relationships with their fathers, but it's not, it's not 
manifested itself in any way like that. But it seems to be a constant that somehow or other this problem stems from a bad or non-existent father-son relationship. That the lack of affection, the lack of contact, the lack of feeling that one is really truly a man and all that one's influences have been entirely feminine, if boys are going to have nothing but feminine influences in their life, it's not that surprising if they're going to be a little bit feminized. That's absolutely, you know, one thing kind of follows the other. And then when they, if, if their development is not brought to its maturity, then being underdeveloped, immature, not seeing themselves as really true and genuine men when the, the centralization of affections and so on occurs by the natural process, they become fixed on but they've never had the affection of a man. It seems to be, and that's, I know this is a, this is a mysterious problem, so I'm not suggesting this as being the, the only answer to this problem, but it would seem that it's, it's, a, it's a factor. And therefore we should also see that, that the things that we do, even in all innocence, even for the best of motives, are going to have a profound effect on our children because as we said at the very beginning, we are the image of God that our children have. To our very young children, we are God. They, they're too young to anything about God in his heaven. They only know God at home, God who is their father. God is their father. We are the reflection of their fatherhood. So sometimes by our carelessness, our insensitivity, our bad humor, our bad moods, which are all perfectly understandable and justified given all the circumstances of our life, we must bear in mind that they can have lasting effects and lasting bad effects, even scars, on the development of our children. Scars which will never, ever be effaced. And often, just through thoughtlessness, not any ill will or anything of the sort, just thoughtlessness. Everything that we do has got its effects for eternity. But our relationship with our children has got particular effects for all eternity. So let's try to see that our fatherhood being the fundamental quality of our lives is that to which we've got to direct really all of our being. First of all, of course, as I said, to our wife, but as a consequence of that, to our children and show them the constant careful attention, affection, and approval, which they so badly need and, alas, so often lack through our carelessness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, hail our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To thee do we cry, for banished children of Eve, 
To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this vale of tears. Turn then, most gracious advocate, the eyes of mercy towards us. And after this, our exile, shown to us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. <clears throat> Thank you.